Thank you for tuning in to Human Rights Survival Guide, a weekly podcast exploring how human rights can survive and thrive in the 21st century. Our guests are experts, human rights defenders, journalists, and activists willing to share their ideas and practical tips on how you can use human rights to empower, to protect, and to bring perpetrators to justice. Hello listeners, today we're back with another episode which is dedicated to international human rights and their implementation. We're joined by two very interesting guests, Anastasia Miller and Kirill Korotev. Anastasia is a senior legal officer at Pilnet, and prior to joining Pilnet, she practiced law in uh, her home country, Kazakhstan, as well as Central Asia region as such. Kirill has been practicing human rights law in his home country, Russia, and also beyond Russia almost 20 years now. His primary focus is the European Court of Human Rights. He has brought dozens, if not hundreds of cases to the before the European Court of Human Rights, so he has a lot to share. The topic of this podcast was prompted by the situation around well-known case of uh, Kyrgyz human rights defender of uh, Uzbek background, Azim Janaskarov, who has been imprisoned some 10 years ago in relation to situation in his home country. Well, he failed to find justice at home and eventually brought a case before the UN Human Rights Committee which in 2016 ruled that he was unjustly imprisoned and asked essentially the uh, Kyrgyz government to release him. Four years after this decision has been passed by the UN Human Rights Committee, Azimjan is still in jail. And despite huge outcry from international community, the pressure is not working and yeah, he continues to be in jail, although he has poor health and he is already has reached a certain age. So the question here is what can those activists, human rights lawyers and civil society at large do in such kind of cases? What remaining instruments do we have that we could use to ensure that unjustly imprisoned person whose condition and situation has been recognized as unjust by the international body? Well, what can we do in such kind of uh, cases? Um, Our first question goes to Anastasia Miller, who is from this region and she's really familiar with this case. But maybe before we talk about Azimjan's case and problems related to this case, let's start on a positive note. And Anastasia, maybe you could share with us your thoughts about how and in which cases uh, going to the UN Human Rights Treaty Bodies and taking cases to Human Rights Committee, for example, has made difference for the victims uh, on the ground. Uh, sure. Uh, UN treaty bodies still uh, effective tools to protect human rights, I believe, uh, when you cannot find justice inside country. But at the same time, you have to remember that after UN treaty body decision, you have to come back on national level and try to enforce implementation of this decision. Um, I was litigating cases in different UN treaty bodies, including Human Rights Committee, Committee Against Torture, and uh, CEDO. And uh, honestly, it's really hard to push implementation on national level because uh, UN treaty bodies still not bonding compared to European Court of Human Rights. But at the same time, I believe if country ratify or join uh, international treaties, it means that they have a will to follow 
the standards and comply with these rules. So that's why we were trying to implement this decision on a national level. And several cases in Kazakhstan, for instance, and in Kyrgyzstan was successfully implemented. But at the same time, it's still a lot of problems because national law doesn't uh, explain clear how implementation uh, should proceed. If we will compare with the European court in most countries like Russia and Ukraine, it's law exists that will allow you at least to apply, try to apply to national law. With UN, it's uh, different. Uh, but at the same time, if we will look at the constitutions uh, around Central Asia, in Tajikistan, in Kazakhstan, in Kyrgyzstan, it's article uh, in constitution uh, which will say that international legal acts or uh, international legal uh, treaties recognized by country are part of the legal system. So we were using this uh, argument and uh, bringing decision to national courts. Um, I would like to mention about the first case that was implemented in Kazakhstan. It was a case uh, Mr. Gerasimov against Kazakhstan. Alexander Gerasimov, he was victim of torture in pre-detentional center in Kostanai region in Kazakhstan in 2006. And we spent around four years to litigate in this case in a committee against torture. And when committee said that Kazakhstan should investigate this case and pay compensation to victim, we start litigate this case on national level. And we spent another three years to fighting for justice and try to force implementation. Uh, it was very hard for victim to go through all these rounds of investigation and testimony. But by the end, we win this case. And police department was forced to pay compensation. It was a court decision supported by Supreme Court in Kazakhstan who uh, obliged to pay a compensation. But at the same time, the second part of UN decision about investigation wasn't implemented. And still, policeman who was accused and tortured in 2006 by Mr. Kirasimov still working in police departments. Thank you. If we zoom out a little bit and talk about, let's say, general broader picture, it somehow all boils down to two factors which contribute to the implementation of human rights. And these factors are political will of a state in question and peer pressure, which can come from other states, which, for example, might be party to whatever convention we are talking about. Unfortunately, we are seeing deterioration in both of the, those areas because political will is essentially vanishing now with the democracy being in uh, decline. And as the democracy is in decline in the West, those countries which have traditionally have had problems with democracy are getting even worse. And also peer pressure is problem stemming from the first problem because once the traditional democracies, you know, are starting having serious human rights problems at home, they are essentially losing a moral ground to apply peer pressure on other states, which have been traditionally problematic. Kirill, uh, you have done quite a lot of work, uh, almost 20 years now, if I'm not mistaken, in Russia. And from, from the very start of your career, you have been focusing on taking cases to the European Court of Human Rights, because very often you fail to find justice in your country. How has the dynamics between these courts has changed over those years in terms of implementation of the judgments? Do you see much change over 
20 years? Simon, it's been different all the time and it's never been easy though and probably never completely successful. So when we compare European Law of Human Rights to UN bodies and the facts of their decisions in Central Asia, there is probably not a striking difference. And if there is difference, it's due to other domestic factors. Uh, and I'm saying that this being um, very well-informed of Azim Janaskarov case, which I follow since more or less its early beginning in 2010. So uh, when we are in Russia and dealing with the European Court of Human Rights, you often get very much similar result that is. You may get a new trial after the European Court of Human Rights judgment, and it will be the same conviction as the one that led to the judgment in your favor. There are so many examples of that. And and that's not the worst. At least, well, there is some possibility to present the case again. But I started, yes, just under 20 years ago with Chechen cases, and in those cases, when you are representing the victim or in criminal proceedings, and where, as a matter of implementation, there has to be a new investigation leading to identification and punishment of those responsible, or just punishment of those responsible, because sometimes they are easy to identify. There is virtually nothing that has happened, at least uh, not a single Russian official, uh, be that military or civilian, has ever faced trial for crimes against civilian population in Chechnya, and after the European Court of Human Rights judgment. There have been very few trials of several officers before the European Court of Human Rights judgment, but not after. So that is probably not a terribly optimistic picture, especially when you amplify it with the approaches of Russian Constitutional Court, saying that, well, uh, sometimes the judgments of the European Court of Human Rights may not be binding on Russia if the Constitutional Court so decides. Essentially, uh, Russian government didn't want to pay UCAS, and for that it enforced a uh, several-step operation, which included a 2015 Constitutional Court judgment saying that uh, Russian Constitution is the supreme rule of Russian legal order, so the Constitutional Court is empowered to say whether the judgments of the European Court of Human Rights are in conformity with the constitution and that sometimes the constitutional court may decide that the judgments should not be implemented. That only happened to two cases, uh, Anchugov and Gladkov on prison voting rights and the Yukos case on the two billion award against the Russian government. Yet, when you look beyond those two cases, because there's been uh, nothing 
so far up to the Eucharist case. If you look again, for example, the Bolotnaya Square cases, the demonstrators who were convicted in this regard of their fair trial and freedom of assembly rights, uh, their cases were not even sent for retrial after Strasbourg judgment. And there are many other examples like that. These are the negative practices, and negative practices, they are very similar with UN bodies and uh, European Court of Human Rights, irrespective of, you know, the exact provisions of the treaties and the constitutions. The positive practices, however, which exists in Russia. They were sometimes, of course, due to the government's understanding of the problem, uh, especially if it was something technical, like length of proceedings before uh, Russian courts, or non-execution of uh, Russian court judgments, or say some other problems, especially in civil procedure, and those were remedied. Now, or with many other issues, for example, the rights of foreign nationals in Russia. It was public pressure that helped uh, the media and uh, the NGOs and uh, basically the general debate in the Russian society that people should not be thrown out uh, of the country for no reason or uh, kept in detention uh, indefinitely. So sometimes when it, the things that help are the pressure by the Russian nationals on the Russian authorities. I see. That's a very good instrument, I imagine, uh, that can be deployed. But I also imagine that it's not always easy to mobilize public pressure, especially in a place like Russia. What other instruments do we have in your disposal when you're getting a judgment which is not executed? Uh, essentially, uh, it is very easy to mobilize uh, Russian public opinion. It is not very easy to get things done when it is for the government to do anything. So, But sometimes it helps, uh, like when you have Russian journalists reporting on those cases and raising problems with, with the government, uh, that legislative reform that may lead to bad uh, constitutional court judgments. So, uh, again, uh, because Russian government if not democratically dependent, then anyhow, nevertheless, dependent on Russian society. Because there is just no other means to make it act. And definitely not the Committee of Ministers of the Council of Europe, this generally meaningless and toothless body which is unable even to properly express concern. It only expresses interest at the information uh, presented by the Russian government. So, having said that, uh, sometimes the submissions to the Committee of Ministers are the documents which, you know, uh, when uh, reported in Russian press, trigger debate in the Russian society. So, we may file those 
documents not because we expect anything from the Committee of Ministers. Uh, we know they will not act. Uh, it will take decades before uh, they express some mild concern. Yet these documents, the proposal we make, the debate engaged with our government is a matter of you know, public media concern. So acting together with media, we may at least, if not in uh, the reform, we may at least win the minds of our fellow citizens. And that is probably the most important. Thanks, Kirill. So obviously, peer-to-peer pressure is not very effective when it comes to Russia. And I, I have unfortunately witnessed it uh, myself too many times. Moving back to the UN, Anastasia, what are the instruments which you would use as a lawyer in case the country does not comply to the decision of a treaty body? Are there any formal or informal proceedings that you can start and how effective are they? Well, at the beginning, I want to come back to the point that you were starting with, Simon. You mentioned Azimjana Iskarov case and you said that it's not implemented yet. And at the same time, uh, this year, for instance, in February in Kyrgyzstan, the city court concluded uh, legally obliged to implement another decision. It was a case Ernazarov against Kyrgyzstan, who was died in custody. And uh, this was the second case where Kyrgyz courts have awarded compensation human rights decision. And at the same time, we can see that Azimjan Askarov case wasn't reviewed by the court. I'm just trying to say that actually it's a lot of political will behind that. And sometimes I feel it's not even legal question if they want to implement or not. It's more political will. And we know that Azimjan Askarov, he is a very famous human rights defender. And uh, he was supporting minorities around Kyrgyzstan, and he was uh, speaking up. He was a very powerful influencer. And I think in this case, it's really hard to talk about legal base for that. It's mostly about political will. And um, come back to the topic that you just discussed with Kirill, how we can get support from other countries. Because for Zinjana Skarov case, it was a lot of international support when uh, European leaders were meeting Kyrgyz president and tried to ask to review this case and bring justice. But it didn't happen still. Um, if we will come back to legal... Uh, based, of course, uh, UN for the last 30 years was developing different uh, rules and guidelines for implementation uh, the decision. Uh, they have a rules of procedure of the Human Rights Committee, for instance, where they set up special uh, rapporteur. This position was established to follow up on cases, but also for dialogue with government officials. And I really uh, encouraging human rights lawyers who are practicing and litigating cases in the UN to use this procedure. Because from my experience, I saw that it's quite effective. According to rules, a special pro- rapporteur can take action by himself. Uh, but at the same time, you as a representative of a victim can approach special rapporteur and ask for some actions. And I found it very helpful. Because a special rapporteur can meet government officials, the mission in the UN, and also bring this case that you're working on 
to the attention in the annual report that special rep- uh, reporter presenting to the General Assembly annually. And it's kind of this annoying call for the government all the time that this case or that case wasn't implemented yet. But at the same time, I think that it's very important to use whole available set of tools in the UN, including uh, Universal Periodical Review, UPR, Special Procedure of the Human Rights Council. Uh, And uh, I think that international advocacy is a very important part of the implementation. From our experience working on the implementation of human rights uh, treaty body decision, it's very important to speak up share this with local journalists, discuss in social media, try to bring these uh, cases to attention, government authorities and international community. And sometimes we can see that even one single case can change um, practice, can change uh, national law as well. Thank you, Anastasia. Kirill, back to you. In 2010, Protocol 14 of the European Convention came into force and with it came a possibility for the member states to start infringement proceedings against a state which is not complying with its legal obligations in relation to a specific judgment. But this procedure has not been very popular and it has been only used once in case of Ilgar Mamedov versus Azerbaijan. What is your opinion of this infringement procedure mechanism Is it something worth pursuing from the lawyer or civil society perspective? Is it worth considering to spend time and energy on this? This is an impressive mechanism because I can't think of any other human rights instrument in international law that would have 100% efficiency. It was used once and in the case where it was used, it brought some very tangible results. So during the proceedings, Ilgar Mamadov was released, something that uh, Azerbaijani government had tried to deny for many years prior to the triggering of infringement proceedings. And later, with delay, obviously, but still, Ilgar Mamadov was cleared of all charges when the Azerbaijani Supreme Court finally heard his appeal on points of law. So even if it is used, you know, without any result, 99 for the times, uh, it will keep 1% of efficiency, which is still impressive by today's uh, standards. Yet, uh, it seems that the approach of the Committee of Ministers is to never use it again or probably about to use it uh, not more frequently than currently, meaning once in 10 years. So uh, it is quite hopeless uh, to advocate for infringement proceedings and it is just a waste of uh, valuable resources. There are, you know, lots of other things into which we can invest rather than in uh, well-paid bureaucrats keeping their, you know, comfortable salaries in Strasbourg because, you know, they're paid for discussing uh, things all over again uh, without any result uh, whatsoever. 
So it is a shame that such mechanism is not used more often. It is a relatively successful mechanism in the European Union, for example, where the European Commission strategically uses against the states that violate European Union law, and it is used several times a year before the European Court of Justice, not before the European Court of Human Rights. And the difference that explains it, perhaps, is that the Committee of Ministers is not uh, dependent precisely not on any democratic community, that these are the represent members of the Committee of Ministers are the representatives of the governments, and in the Council of Europe well, there are so many undemocratic governments, uh, they are not even remotely democratically accountable, whereas with all the deficit of democracy that there is in the European Union, uh, European Commission is responsible to the European Parliament, which is elected by citizens. So, again, however imperfect uh, the structure of the European Union is, it is still uh, much more advanced than that of the Council of Europe. Uh, which is probably explains why the European Commission is much more effective and efficient uh, than the Committee of Ministers of the Council of Europe. So you see, uh, people working with UN bodies look to the European Court of Human Rights and the Council of Europe, and people working with European Court of Human Rights and Council of Europe look at the European Union, European Court of Justice, so you need to bring someone with uh, experience uh, of the European Court of Justice to say that this is definitely not the ideal which uh, we should strive to achieve. Uh, Council of Europe also recently, beginning of this year, adopted a new kind of procedure which relates to suspension of uh, membership of non-complying states. And to me, uh, at least this is like my first impression, the way this procedure has been framed and the way it has been framed requires trilateral agreement between the Committee of Ministers, Parliamentary Assembly and the Secretariat or Secretary General in order to start infringement proceedings. Do you think this procedure is going to ever be used for a state which is systematically non-complying? Well, it was designed precisely not to be used, and it was designed to replace the otherwise clear rules of the Statute of the Council of Europe, and that was to please the Russian government that threatened to uh, not to pay its membership fees, and, well, it didn't pay its membership fees for almost two years, so... The council was reaching two years without Russian money, and it had to take measures under the statute that was suspension of uh, Russian participation in the Committee of Ministers, because Russian participation in the Parliamentary Assembly had already been suspended. And while no one uh, basically had the will to take that decision, and Council of Europe wanted money, and that was not an impressive sum. It was uh, on the scale of probably... 60 million euros, so not much, and yet they preferred this sum of money to their principles and uh, probably even more importantly 
to their statutory rules that they were bound to apply. So probably we are just wasting our time discussing Council of Europe, which uh, destroyed its very credibility. It is sad to see that, uh, when you read what people intended the Council of Europe to be in the late 40s, but, well, it has no longer the interest and the support of member states to be the beacon of democracy, human rights and rule of law, so it is now ceding to pressures by the governments like Russia and Turkey, which definitely do not want to see a rules-based organization applying uh, pre-established legally binding treaties and case law in the field of human rights. Yeah, unfortunately I have to fully agree with you here, uh, and I think this decision or the position that Council of Europe has taken in relation to Russia has not only destroyed the credibility of Council of Europe as an international institution set up to promote human rights and rule of law, but it also drastically lowered the bar for other member states of the Council of Europe to respect human rights. And we talked about peer pressure and, you know, when you're accepting what Russia does to its own nationals and nationals of other countries and you're ready to close eyes then what else can we talk about right okay our last concluding question to you both again zooming out and maybe forgetting about specific treaties because our podcast targets civil society leaders activists lawyers etc and we always try to frame our questions from that perspective what global civil society or regional civil society, in this case in Europe or Central Asia, could do in order to change or rewrite the rules of the game and to restore <laughs> the glory of uh, international human rights law, if you wish? Is there anything that we could do together to make this happen, to improve things when it comes to implementation of human rights? I would say that it's very important, solidarity is very important to support each other. And at the same time, I still believe that this international mechanism that's available for us, we have to use it because first, it's setting up standards and provide guidelines for national law that we can bring to the government attention and promote human rights. And the second reason why we should use these mechanisms and treaty bodies it's opportunity to speak up on international level because in some countries like Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, some in Central Asia, sometimes it's really hard to find a platform. Uh, it's really hard to find a room to speaking up and bringing uh, attention to a specific problem about human rights. And I think solidarity and in, uh, international advocacy, it's a very effective tool that can help us to protect human rights and promote that values that was set up uh, in uh, different international treaty bodies. Thank you, Anastasia. Kirill, any thoughts? Look, I'm probably, even though I'm speaking from experience, which is not as drastic as that of my colleagues in many Central Asian states, well, the pro part of the problem is that, of course, uh, Western governments do not... Uh, 
take uh, human rights uh, treaties, human rights law seriously. Uh, United States and United Kingdom are the primary examples um, of disregard uh, for human rights law and in the modern world it is now very easy to point uh, at them at least it's very easy for the Russian government to say that if the United Kingdom doesn't comply with the uh, European Court of Human Rights judgments, why should Russia? This is, by the way, precisely what uh, also Georgian government said in response to the Nikizin case uh, against Georgia on the uh, murder in Tbilisi, which was not investigated. Uh, the Georgian government said exactly this. Uh, so it is also something that Poles and Hungarians, I mean, Polish and Hungarian governments, and in the recent days and following the German Constitutional Court judgment of 5 May, uh, disregarding in the European Court of Justice, well, the Polish government uh, reacted one of the first, saying, oh, if Germany can disregard, why should we obey the judgments criticizing uh, our judicial reform and undermining the independence of Polish judiciary because we want Polish judiciary to be uh, subordinate to Polish executive. So this is quite common and the situation is that, well, I need more examples like when uh, European civil society is successful in enforcing human rights laws against European governments. And I'm thrilled to see how my Polish colleagues, for example, my Hungarian colleagues, uh, take cases against their governments and are successful and make their governments uh, comply with the judgments. Uh, and we are now expecting the European Court of Justice on the Hungarian law, which was copied from Russian foreign agents in all but name. And we see that European Court of Justice was able to deal with such issue in two years, whereas European Court of Human Rights is unable to deal with this issue for more than seven years. That's one thing. So uh, pressure on Western governments from Western society. What's currently happening in the United States is again one of the examples when uh, American civil society uh, demands the respect for non-discrimination and, and racial uh, injustice in the United States. It generates debate in Russia and that is very important. So in any if there is change happening, be that uh, in Russia, in Armenia, in Kyrgyzstan, it happens for domestic reasons, not because uh, someone uh, has advocated something in Geneva or Strasbourg or Brussels or this. And for that, uh, of course, solidarity. Here I totally agree with this. You see, solidarity is important. And again, uh, it works both ways. And uh, I very much hope that my solidarity with my Hungarian, Polish, French colleagues is not in vain when uh, they are trying to 
make their governments comply with their constitutions, with our common human rights rules, etc., etc. So we have to keep pushing everyone at his or her own spot, and sometimes things do change again. Armenians showed example two years ago when just there was things barely visible and the change came. So it is not impossible that it may come in another place. Thank you very much to both of you for a very interesting conversation and for finding time to talk to us and to our listeners. Thank you, Simon. Thank you. Hopefully we'll have you back in our podcast at some point uh, in the coming weeks. In the meantime, wish you nice weekends and our podcast will be back next week. Thank you very much.